All right, Marky, episode 32. We have a very Buffalo podcast here today. Our guest is Jack Connors, publisher of Buffalo Business First and the co-director of The Homecoming that we'll get into. Jack, welcome to the Talk. Thanks, thanks. Great to be here. Jack comes from uh, South Buffalo, of course, and he's a very uh, educated guy. He's very Buffalo savvy. He knows what's going on around here. He started out at Bishop Timon and went to Hutch Tech. We'll get right off the bat. What happened at Bishop Timon, Jack? <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, uh, you know, like most kids in, in uh, parochial school, when you're in eighth grade, you're a star, you know. And uh, uh, so I went to St. Ambrose, and uh, and everybody was going to Timon. So I said, hey, let's go to Timon. And uh, so I got there freshman year, and, uh, and boy, I sucked as a student. It was terrible. It was, uh, I had to get a tutor for Latin. Um, I had a, a, a priest, Father Celestine, who taught uh, the new math. It was something that uh, that had been introduced. I think we were the first year that uh, that he was teaching it, and uh, of course, I responded in kind. With I think my final grade was like forty-two or something like that, mm-hmm. and I uh, went to summer school at South Park with uh, um, you know with uh, uh, Boone Cleary and uh, uh, Dice McGrath and uh, all these every everybody that uh, you know didn't do very well in uh, the new math and uh, it was just decided that uh, you know timing wasn't going to be for me you know they were slapping the hell out of everybody and it was time <laughs> sort of time to go I was and I wasn't even in the main building we were at the annex over on Como and um, uh, and so I was looking around and I, I knew I was interested in uh, electrical technology engineering that kind of stuff you know at 13 you really don't know what you want but um, uh, a friend of the family taught it uh, uh, at Seneca, and, and, and I talked to him, and he said, well, you should go to Hutch Tech because you want to go to college. And, um, you know, it's all college preparatory. And uh, um, so I said, great. So sophomore year, I went went on went to Hutch Tech. I got on the bus, the South Park, took the South Park bus downtown every day with, uh, uh, let's see, who was on that bus? There was a lot of reprobates on that bus. Uh, Mike Donovan, Dick Donovan, um, uh, uh, Brian Hayden's uh, uh, sister, uh, there was there was probably a dozen of us that would take the bus South Park bus uh, every day, and then as we got a little older. Johnny Cleary and and going up to Fallon, and my brother uh, Jim was going up to Fallon, and um, so it was uh, it was always an adventure every day. But I, I really loved Hutch Tech. It was uh, it was a great experience. It was it was really uh, nice because it was it was not necessarily a vocational school, but you took. All of the the vocational school courses you took shop you took uh, you took metallurgy you took drafting you took electrical technology you took carpentry and it, it was it broke up the day and, and the academics were really really strong and I was going to school uh, with a lot of a lot of my friends still from the west side uh, on Seneca Street there was just a whole group of us that uh, um, still still are good friends and get together you know, pretty pretty regularly for lunch and that kind of thing. And then I had all my South Buffalo friends, the, the kids I went to grammar school with, the kids I grew up with in the neighborhood, kids I went to Timon with. So I had these I had, had two different two different spheres of friends. Um, I've had them pretty much all my life. You know, they've they've all. Uh, I mean, I I mentioned earlier I go I go kayaking with uh, with uh, Steve Corkman who grew up in Ridgewood and. Uh, uh, Dickie Donovan, who grew up on Marilla Street, uh, Kevin Cleary, who grew up on Marymount. Um, you know, we we get out and go kayaking. Willie Shelkoff from over on Seneca Street. So all all the guys we hung around with in in high school and in uh, in college with um, that were local, we still hang around with. You know, I still hang around with, and they're they're, they're good 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 friends. You know, fiercely loyal. Like uh, the, Sean is our good friend, and he's 
very loyal to us. There's not a birthday party that he doesn't show up for the kids with a gift, and yeah. that's come straight from you, apparently. Yeah. Well, good upbringing, I guess, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I always thought that there was something that we missed out, working with your hands. That really helped out, helped you out down the road, didn't it? It, it did. You know, I always um, I was always taking something apart or putting it back together, or trying to put it back together. And uh, I enjoyed doing that. My dad was an electrician. Uh, you know, worked all his life in in, uh, in construction. He was a commercial electrician, so he worked on different different uh, construction projects and that type of thing. And uh, he'd always uh, he'd always have an apprentice um, working with him. Um, one apprentice I remember the best is Jimmy Gleason. Jimmy um, uh, became the, the the business agent for the electrician union years ago, but he came from a real big family out in Hamburg. Um, and uh, uh, my dad would bring a payday. He'd bring uh, Jimmy or whoever the apprentices were. He'd bring them back to our house, and they'd sit in the garage. And you know, he had made himself a kegerator out of an old refrigerator. And you know, they'd sit there and have beers and just just BS. And and uh, you know, I got I hung around with them. And then um, so when I when I was in, uh, I, I think my father really put. I know he pushed me to to uh, to graduate from college because. I wanted to apply for the apprenticeship program in the electrician union. I was really interested in it. And uh, I found out years later, he basically told uh, uh, the business agent at the time, don't let him in, you know, just, <laughs> he's going to college. He's the one, I didn't even know my father knew I was in college. But, uh, um, you know, but he let my, now he encouraged my brother, Kevin. Uh, Kevin went to um, Seneca Vocational. And Kevin was smart, and he, you know, he he knew what he wanted to do. He 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 went to ECC, I think, for about a year and a half. I don't know. If, I don't think he even ended up graduating. But but you know, he became an electrician. He he went through the apprenticeship program. Him and uh, Char- Charlie Moore. A lot of you guys know Charlie from lives on McKinley. And, yeah, yeah. And uh, and we grew up with. I grew up with Charlie and his family. Um, they were my father and his father were best friends. But so you know, Kevin was in the apprenticeship program with Charlie, and they and they went through it, and uh, um, and uh, you know. You know, Kevin ended up dying in an accident about uh, uh, about a year and a half after he finished the program. But you know, he always had work. He always was uh, he was good at what he did. But uh, uh, so my father encouraged that, and then my brother Jim went went to Fallon for a year. I guess we were, we were real big on going to Catholic high schools for a year and then getting out. And then, and then he went to South Park. My sister went to Mount Mercy, and then my youngest brother went went and finished at Timon. So. So it was uh, it was interesting, but yeah, using your hands was always a big part of our family and making things and doing things. And then we're moving on to Kenesha's College. Graduated from Kenesha's College. I did, I did. That took a little while. Uh, I went to night school. What what happened was I, I started working at the steel plant when I graduated from Hutch Tech, and it was just a summer job. Uh, a guy named uh, uh, Tom Finley who lived over on uh, I think Tom lived on um, on Harding, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And um, uh, Tom was a, a supervisor out at the steel plant, and he worked in the, the stores area where they, everyone would come if you needed new gloves or helmets or uh, shoes or bolts or whatever it was. The stores department had all that stuff. So I started working there in the summer of 67, and when all the, all the college kids started going back, back to school, uh, and one of my, I won't call him a mentor, but one of, one of my most memorable people from uh, – um, uh, from the steel plant was uh, Mouse Talty. Oh, uh, so so Mouse was a, uh, at the time Mouse was a student at, at uh, St. Bonaventure, and uh, um, uh, Mouse was great. You know, he said, "Don't work so hard. You know, slow it down." You know, and that, that was like his second or third year working there. And uh, and Steve Corcoran uh, from Ridgewood, uh, one of my best friends, uh, we, we worked together, and we got assigned. Uh, so we both decided we were going to stay. 
you know, we weren't going to leave when the summer summer was over. They didn't. They needed some people, and they said, "Yeah, you can stay if you want." So they assigned the two of us to what was called the oil house. So the storage department, you had to uh, all of the oil that was used in the steel plant came in in bulk, and then you had to fill orders for the different departments. So they so you'd fill up fifty five gallon drums of oil, and a truck would come every morning, and our forklift operator at the time was. Uh, uh, it was uh, Billy Stack uh, from over on Seneca Street uh, who, who passed away a few years ago. Billy had some some issues, but a great guy. He's uh, Beth Lewis's uh, brother, actually. Yeah. And Billy was a good friend. So the three of us were together, and we were, you know, we just had a ball working in the place. I mean, we it was a b- big building with these big tanks, and we had it all to ourselves, you know. And we'd we'd fill up these orders, and then we'd you know take a nap, or we'd we'd do something stupid, you know, play baseball in the building or basketball or something. But uh, so so that lasted probably about a year, year and a half. And I got uh, so I was going to Canisius College at night to, at night school. So I was working seven to three, and uh, classes at Canisius started at uh, four four thirty. So I take classes up at Canisius during the night, and then you know it, it became a this vicious cycle where we'd you'd finish your classes, you'd. You'd, uh, you'd go over to the coffee house on Seneca Street, uh, which is now part of the property is part of Blackthorn, but uh, a coffee house used to be there. You'd go over there, you'd drink till till midnight, one o'clock, and then you'd go go home, go to bed, get up at 6.30, go back to the steel plant, and go to, then go to school. And then, so just this kept up for, you know, way too hustle. long. Yeah, yeah, yeah you were just, we were just moving, and, you know, and, and none of us had girlfriends or anything at the time, so we had, you know, we just, you know. Just doing what we were just doing. Just drinking coffee all night. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, this is like the uh, protest era too. Like, you yeah. Know? Oh yeah. And it, and it, and it started, you know, it started building up, um, you know, after we were at, uh, in the, in the like 68 and, uh, and 69. So I, I kept working at the steel plant. I got transferred to a couple of different departments and, uh, uh, worked with uh, in the real estate department, which basically took care of all the real estate Bethlehem owned. They used to own uh, where uh, Mulberry is over in Bethlehem Park. Bethlehem Steel owned all those houses. They were they, they were essentially built as uh, as a company town, um, you know, years ago in the in the twenties and thirties, and they owned a lot of property down in the first ward in Lackawanna, and. Uh, uh, Mamula's restaurant used to be at the one corner of the one street, and you know you go by Mamula's restaurant, you stop in there and get coffee, and then go. They had a shop back there where they had um, they had a carpentry shop, they had a plumbing shop. So these guys were all plumbers and carpenters, electricians, and they they worked on all these houses. So you know, unfortunately, I got stuck with the plumbers a lot. So you had to go clean out you know dirty diapers from uh, you know from uh, sewer drains and things like that. But that lasted for for a couple of years, and then uh, I got uh, over into the bar mill uh, in uh, down on down near uh, Lake Avenue, and that was that was really that was a lot harder work, and it was a lot it was really interesting. But uh, you know, you were on a line pulling pulling bars that uh, uh, basically it's called a draw mill, and they you know they make bars, they make uh, the big thing was uh, steel for uh, springs for cars, uh, and you got paid by the ton. Uh, and there was an incentive for every type of steel. So if if spring steel was being run, that was one of the highest incentive steel. So you made, you know, maybe you made an extra, I don't know, 15, 20, 25 cents an hour if you were working on that versus just working on, you know, rebar that was coming out. So it was, it was a real interesting job. And you did, you ended up doing a lot of different jobs when you were doing it, you know. And that's where I, I even learned more about, about mechanics and, and working on, uh, um, and, and the mill, my, my uh, uncle was, uh, uh, Ed Volk was a, um, 
millwright so he was in he was i'd see him almost every shift because he'd be in there help you know working on on getting the the uh, machines back up and running and that kind of stuff so he's he taught me a lot of stuff so it was it was it was really interesting and then and i got laid off and then i got called back and got laid off called back and got laid off and i thought you know this is i can't do this anymore and then uh, and then they started steel plants started laying off so now we're back into the 70s already so i've been going to school you know, for four years already, and it's just, you know, I'm still credit short. And uh, the thing at night school at Canisius, um, I think out of all the, I think all my credit hours, I think I've got well over 70 credit hours in English and English literature because that's all they, they had. I mean, the night school wasn't uh, uh, wasn't quite as refined as it is. They don't even call it night school anymore. You know, it's mm. just classes are held at night. But um, but it was very uh, unfriendly to the working person. I mean, you know, you get you'd get to cl- you had to be a class at four, and if you wanted to go to the bursar's office or the registrar's office to change anything, well, they closed at four o'clock. So, right. so you couldn't, you know, you couldn't do anything. You couldn't get anything done unless you took off of work. Is Buffalo booming at that time? You always hear, oh, but back when the steel plant was going, you know, well, we had four deep at the bar for lunch. We had to hire all these people. Well, you know, 67, when I started there, it really was. I mean, they had a separate satellite hiring office over on Jefferson Avenue. I mean, they were looking for people. I think there were 20, 22 or 23,000 people working there at the time. And, uh, you know, those, those, those old films you see were, you know, hundreds of people are streaming in or streaming out of a plant. I mean, that's what it was like um, down at Bethlehem Steel. It, it was just booming. And, um, you know, the economy changed and and uh, the Japanese and the Germans started making steel more efficiently. You know, they had, uh, you know, Bethlehem ended up putting in these basic oxygen furnaces. Um, but by the time they put them in, it was it was pretty close to old technology. I mean, they just they were they were just behind the time. They weren't invest reinvesting back in, uh, you know, back in into the plants. And I think you know I think it all went back to policy, you know, uh, government policy and and how they viewed manufacturing and and yeah. whatever. And it, it just you know it just died out. A lot of people blame the unions, and the unions were tough. I mean, it was you know when I worked a couple times when I worked at. Uh, uh, down the bar mill, you know, my job was as a hooker. So all you, what you did was, you know, working three to or uh, eleven to seven. The, the crane operator would have a list of of, um, of of pickups he had to make to put into a gondola car or on a truck. So as soon as, so I'd be, we, myself and another guy would be on the ground and we'd be running around, and you know, he'd go to, he'd, he'd tell us an area to go to. What to hook up? He'd take it and put it in the in the train uh, you know, in the train car uh, uh, or on a truck, and after about we'd hustle from eleven thirty till maybe one one thirty, and his list was exhausted. He had nothing else to do. They didn't give him anything else to do, so he'd tell us go hide. <laughs> <laughs> so you'd climb up on these stacks of uh, wire and take some old. Uh, uh, canvas bags with you, or, and, and, and lay down and take a nap. And <laughs> when it was starting to get close to the next, you know, he'd leave a couple of things, uh, and you know, would get to be about six o'clock in the morning. He'd he'd blow his horn and wake you up and go, okay, let's finish up. You know, yeah. you know, so you got three or four hours sleep sometimes. So it was, it was, it was interesting. You know, there was a lot of jobs that, that, uh, I won't say there were no show jobs, but you showed up, but you didn't do much. Uh, probably how, that's yeah. McGurn probably had yeah. one of those. <laughs> how did the, uh, d- the draft affect that? Well, it was interesting. You know, one of the things like, like I mentioned, my buddy, Billy Stack, uh, Billy, um, uh, Billy, uh, didn't get drafted. He joined the air force cause he knew he was going to get drafted. Um, 
so when he when he went, um, his dad was still working. He used to go into the seal plant every day with his dad, and his dad his dad passed away while he was in the Air Force, and uh, he got he got called back, and um, the, you know they gave him the option. You know you can you can leave you know now because you're the sole supporter of your family, and and if you I don't know if you know the Stack family, great family from oh, over yeah. at Seneca Street. I mean, there's ten, eleven. I mean. Billy was the oldest, so I mean, he had he his youngest sister was maybe two or three at the time, and his mom didn't work, uh, um, so Billy decided you know he'd come out and, and be the sole sole support of the family, and so he didn't have to go back in. But yeah, you'd, you'd see people you know people that you worked with you know one day they're there, the next day they're gone, and um, you know they're they're either drafted or uh, a volunteer and, and went in. Um, and I think it had some impact on it. But not anything noticeable because there were so many employees there. Were you ever? A, did you have a draft number? Or I had a yeah. I had a, I had a low draft number. They didn't. They uh, I actually went down for my physical, and I was standing there with a whole bunch of guys from South Buffalo who who were there, and uh, um, I, I had high blood pressure, of all things, right? So so uh, I was like, thank the Lord, you know. <laughs> yeah. I just so I didn't I didn't have to go. I got a deferment for uh, for a while. I had a college deferment uh, when it, as soon as I came out of college, that was gone, and. Yeah. Uh, um, so it, they, I don't know why they were getting so picky, but you know, if you had flat feet or you had high blood pressure, they weren't going to take you. Yeah. My uncle yeah. was blind. My other uncle had seizures. It was like the, it was a pick of whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my dad, my uh, objectors, COs, yeah. and my, you know, my dad was in world war two. My dad was blind in one eye and you know, he, Oh yeah. They, they didn't they give took a him. shit. No. Get on the boat. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, so whatever reason, you know, and, and it was all, all over by 73, you know, pretty much. And, um, uh, you know, so everybody got through it. You know, I th- you know, we I participated in you know marches and and everything against the war down at Canisius College. I remember, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the right after the Kent State shootings, there was major rallies down at the Canisius College and UB and everywhere. And uh, you know, um, you know, that was a big part of uh, the, the pressure put on the government to um, to, to shut it down finally. And and um, you know, if you look at, if you ever watch Ken Burns's um, oh, uh, Vietnam, um, I mean, got some good friends who, um, who, who were there, and and uh, um, and in fact, I was with one last night, and I said, I said, have you watched that series? Because someone started talking to him about Vietnam. He never, never talks about Vietnam, and um, and somebody brought it up and he I could tell he was reluctant to talk about it and then I said to him after I said do you ever watch that series he said I watched like the first two or three and another friend uh, uh, Terry Canan I uh, asked him uh, Terry just passed uh, this past year um, I said he couldn't watch it after the second one and and, if, and I think it was the second or the third one in, in the in the series is when uh, uh, you know the politicians were all admitting that well, they knew they were never going to. It was it was useless, and they let it go on for another five or six years. Right. And it, it was the, the the the, I guess the arrogance of them and 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 such was so much that these guys couldn't watch it anymore. It was like, why did you let this happen? And uh, so that's sort of a long, yeah. long way around there. But yeah. but you know, it's one of those things that that uh, you look back on it and and you look at your friends that 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 went and your friends that didn't go. And there's no animosity held either way. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, your friends are your friends. Right. And, um, you know, you're always going to disagree whether it's about the Bills or the Vietnam War. You're going <laughs> yeah. to disagree. But Did you go to Woodstock? I did not. I was working. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So my mom said there's a few names. Uh, John Gerard. 
Oh, John. Yeah, I keep in touch with John all the time. Oh, okay. Yeah, John is uh, John's a big shot now. John teaches at the, the Parsons School of Design in New York and, and has a studio called Gerard Studio. Uh, John's home a lot. He's he's uh, he's uh, uh, he's a good friend. He uh, he and his uh, uh, partner Mary Creed live in live in Brooklyn and and run this studio. And they they do a lot of a uh, uh, lot of design work for uh, Broadway shows. They do specialty effects and things like that. So yeah, John John's still a good friend. I was with John. Uh, yeah, couple, she said a couple times this year. They asked her to go to Woodstock with them, and she's like, I, my mom yeah. wouldn't let me Yeah, go. they went. I think yeah. he, he and John call her in, and I think Dick Donovan. There was a whole bunch yeah. of them there. And then another name, she's like, I don't know if you know him, Squints? Oh, Jordan, Dennis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Everybody knows Squints. <laughs> yeah, now, there's a Vietnam <laughs> There's a Vietnam guy that yeah. – uh, that, uh, that's, uh, yeah, Dennis lives in uh, New York. He's, he's retired from uh, – um, from the post office, but he 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 taught uh, journalism. He went to, when he got out of the service. He went to to Florida State, and then he went to Ohio State for his master's degree. Taught for a while in Baltimore and, uh, and that. But yeah, I see every time I'm in New York, I see squints. Yeah, yeah, she said there was an intellectual group of people, and she said you were in it. And these people, <laughs> she's like, there might be a lot of crazy stories about squints, but they all ended up being very very successful. Yeah, people. yeah. And squints married uh, uh, married. Uh, uh, a good friend of your mom's, and, right. and they, they they ended up divorced, but they got two great kids, and and they 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 now have their own kids. So, uh, but yeah, Squints is a he's he's a, he's one of those uh, you know unforgettable people. Yeah, he's a good good friend. Yeah. So we're we're around 1972, and a lot of people don't know there was a second paper in Buffalo, the Courier Express, and. Young Jack Connors goes into the Courier Express looking for a gig. Yeah, so well, it was it was sort of that was an interesting. Uh, so my un- unemployment insurance ran out from the steel plant, and uh, uh, my father. I'm still living at home. I'm t- I'm 23, and my father says, uh, uh, "Don't you think you better get a job like now?" <laughs> and uh, I thought, well, I, I guess I will. And uh, so uh, uh, I knew of a couple of people that were working up in up the Curry Express. Uh, Huey O'Connor from over on Cumberland was working up there. Mike Donovan from Merrill Street was working there, and uh, another friend of ours from the ward, Billy Hoare, was uh, uh, was was working, but had just left. And Billy worked in the he worked in the um, uh, press room, and they, he worked on the presses, cleaning the presses and fixing the presses and that. And I thought, perfect job. You work overnight. You go in when the presses finish up, probably about six o'clock in the morning, five, five, six, and you work your eight-hour shift and you're out of there. And it was pretty, pretty regular, you know, Monday through Friday. Uh, and if you work weekends, you had two two consecutive days off during a week. So I went in to apply for that Billy's job um, because I knew it was open. Uh, I got tipped off that there was an opening there, and uh, so I go in and I, I interview with uh, with uh, Fillmore V Hall, Van Hall. Oh. Uh, and, uh, it's Jimmy's whole childhood, right there. There you go. <laughs> the owner of Crystal Beach Amusement <laughs> yes. Park. Yeah. So Van was uh, uh, Van was great. Uh, he uh, he looked at my resume and said, "Oh, you got an English degree. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna put you in the you know in the press room. I'm gonna put you up in the newsroom." And it was like, "No, I don't want to go up there." Because well, that's <laughs> the only thing I have to offer. It was like, uh, in the newsroom, you worked you worked three to eleven was a great shift. But usually it was five thirty to one thirty or six to two in the morning, and um, you had split days off. You had like Tuesdays and Thursdays off, and uh, uh, it, it just wasn't you know twenty three. That's not what you want to be doing. I mean, yeah. was the newsroom like you, this picture of the newsroom? Like, yeah, you got to go see the guy over here. Oh, right? oh yeah, but, oh yeah. absolutely, it was cigarettes. everybody was smoking cigarettes, <laughs> and um, um, so I so I I didn't have much choice. I had to take it. So I was a copy boy. 
and uh, and I, so you had to go. You had is to there go. There's still a copy boy. There, there were at now, the time. nowadays. Well, when I started at the Courier, that we still <laughs> everything was set in hot lead. So you had you go down to the uh, composing room and uh, uh, and they were they were clacking away on their keyboards, and right next to them was a. A, a bucket filled with that was heated that was filled with hot lead and they, these big ingots they were probably about 18 inches long you'd take the ingots and put them in there and and the typesetters would sit there and and and, and do blocks of type and everything was everything was put in uh, uh you know backwards and and these guys read it uh, you know i go go there and uh, uh who was there larry hughes was uh was working there um uh, tommy kate um uh, his brother Mike Kate was was in a different department. Uh, a lot of South Buffalo guys. So I ended I ended up in the um, up in the newsroom, and it was fun. I mean, it was just just fun seeing all the action and what was going on. And um, the, the guy who was the editor at the time, Doug Turner, was a whack job. So he was uh, um, turned out to be a good guy. But but he and I were like oil and water, you know. So I didn't I didn't get too far. But what um, uh, Billy Coughlin uh, was sports writer at the time, Billy. Billy grew up over on Stevenson, next door to my mom and dad, and uh, uh, Joey's uncle. Um, 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 and uh, Billy was just a great guy. He just, you know, he said, "No, I grew up with your your mother and family, and you know, I'm going to take care of you." And, and then uh, the guy who was the uh, uh, business editor at the time, Flynn, his wife had lived across the street on Stevenson, and you know, so everything everybody was tied together, and it was it was it was a lot of fun. So I was I was a copy boy for maybe a year, year and a half, and then I went up to work in the morgue. Uh, which was basically a library where they had all the clipping files and things like that. So I was up there for for well, about maybe a year and a half, uh, something like that. And then I decided I'm going to go to graduate school. And they they had a nice policy where they they didn't pay you, but you could take a, a leave of absence and come back to your same position when you when you uh, when you did. So when I came back from graduate school, I there was a new a new uh, regime in place. Uh, the Connors family had sold out uh, sold the paper to a group out of uh, Minnesota. Uh, Minneapolis, and um, so there was a new editor, um, all new people, a new managing editor. And um, when I came back, they said, "Now nah, you're not going to go back up there. You're going to you're going on the copy desk." So I went right on the copy desk, and and um, and from there until the paper closed, I was a uh, uh, copy editor and uh, rewrite guy, and then I uh, I was the assistant uh, city editor when the paper closed for special projects. So so you saw a lot of how that business worked. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and it, and I, I saw the evolution of it. You know, I mean, when I started, it was hot type. When when I left, it was uh, you know people were doing. Um, uh, paper galleys and you know they were they were using computers and and uh, early the earliest iteration of of, uh, of computers for especially for newsrooms so where did the courier go wrong well I don't know that it went wrong I think it was just a it was it was really um, uh, it, it really succumbed to the economy to, uh, to a certain degree you know, now you get a you get a, you get the Buffalo News on a Sunday, and there's what they call uh, pre-printed inserts in the paper. You know, they're usually for, you know, Tops will have one in there, and then there'll be some national ones. Well, at one time they were, I mean, you you literally have twenty or thirty of them in there. So when the big box retailers like Twin Fair, uh, Maxims, um, uh, A's, uh, Hangers, all all those stores had pre-printed inserts that went into the paper every every uh, every Sunday. And uh, that sort of went away uh, as they went away. Um, but the thing that the courier, hit, you know, the, the the headwind that the courier hit was was when Warren Buffett bought the Buffalo News. So, you know, Warren Buffett bought the Buffalo News not because he was in favor of great journalism; he was in favor of great money. Mm-hmm. And, and and those publications at the time they were 
you know, profit margins of, of 25, 30 percent were not, were not unheard of, you know, where a regular manufacturing company, you know, if they hit 5 percent, they're, you know, they're over the top thrilled. Uh, so these were these literally printed money. These 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 publications at the time, and you know Warren Buffett looked at, at the Buffalo News, and there wasn't there was no Sunday news at the time. Um, their their big paper was on Saturday. Uh, the Couriers was on Sunday. During the week, they sort of split the revenue, and I think that was because it was two families that ran them: Connors family for the uh, no relation Connors family mm-hmm. uh, for the Courier, and then. Um, uh, the uh, I can't remember the name name of the family, but anyways, the the family that ran the the news, and they sort of had a gentleman's agreement that you know, okay, you do you do Saturday, that'll be your big paper. We'll do Sunday, that'll be our big paper. When Warren Buffett came in, it was like, no, 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 we're we're here to make money. So they started a Sunday newspaper immediately, and uh, they started giving it away. I mean, the, the Courier filed a lawsuit and got an injunction against them giving it away. Um, so it just went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And, and finally it got to the point where the, the people out of Minneapolis that owned the courier sort of just gave up. And it was, um, the chairman of the company there was the one who unilaterally made the decision to close the courier without consulting with his board. And he ended up being ousted from the board himself at some point, uh, not, not too much later because they didn't think it was a great decision, but you know, the deed was done and the courier was closing and that was, that was it. I mean, there wasn't going to, there was no reprieve. I mean, they went to the unions, um, um, uh, the uh, uh, folks from um, uh, Rupert Murdoch's people came and made an offer to buy the courier and they were publishing the San Antonio Light at the time, which was a pretty good newspaper, uh, but was one of their first forays into, into newspapers because they were an Australian company you know, coming into the States. And uh, Murdoch himself didn't have a great reputation because he he owned some of the the papers in London that were uh, you know the tabloids that were that were pretty much uh, uh, all gossip sheets. But anyways, um, the owners of the of the Courier uh, out of Minneapolis gave created this artificial deadline that uh, for for them to sell it to Murdoch and what the concessions Murdoch wanted from the, the unions they had to be decided by a certain date. So those agreements had to be in place. And why it was done that way, I'm not sure. But uh, by the time that deadline came, um, Murdoch's people had only met with, I think, two of like 20 unions that were involved at the Courier. And um, and they were tough getting any type of, you know, people were willing to make concessions. Um, but some of the things they wanted, it wasn't going to happen. And then when it finally closed, they blamed the, the unions for closing it. Well, they didn't even meet with three quarters of the unions. They met with a couple of them. So it did, you know, it just uh, it was it was Dane from the beginning that it was going to close. I don't think there was any real, um, uh, real concerted effort to try and keep it open. Unfortunately, what were the advantages of having a two paper town? Because now, I I, I can't stand it. Yeah. Not have, I mean, we have one sports radio station. We have one. Uh, newspaper. What were the advantages back then? Well, they, it was the competition factor. You know, people were digging. There was more investigative journalism going on. Uh, more people were, were digging into um, uh, uh, what was happening at many different levels, especially in government. Uh, what you saw happen after the courier closes, the, the TV station started hiring in, people to be investigative reporters. You know, Tony Farina was hired, I think, at the at, at Channel Two to be an investigative reporter because they saw there was a uh, there was a void there that the daily one daily newspaper one didn't have the resources and two didn't have the motivation to 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 be doing multiple investigative stories. And uh, so the TV stations thought, yeah, we can get in on this. 
Um, so, so that that's what happened uh, to a certain degree. Um, I don't know. I was disappointed that I mean, I, I, when the career closed, uh, I, I was never out of work. You know, I I, I was fortunate. I went down to uh, to Newsday, um, as it got offered a, uh, a tryout there, did the tryout, offered a job, and then at the same time, uh, Mark Francis, who was the previous editor of uh, the Niagara Gazette, had come to the Courier for about a year. Uh, he went back up to to Niagara Gazette, and I worked with Mark on the on the on the uh, city city desk. And uh, Mark asked if I would, you know, consider coming to Niagara Falls. So this was like within a day of me being offered a job in in Long Island that I accepted. And um, uh, you know, I I talked to the folks in Long Island. In fact, the guy who hired me was a guy named Stan Asimov, and um, a great, great human being, just a really super nice guy. And I explained the the situation to Stan, and he said said, look, it, you know. You got to do what you've got to do for your family, and 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 you know do it. And uh, he said, if it doesn't work out, he said you've got a job here. And he, if I, as long as I'm still working here, you got a job here. And um, so that that was very heartening. So I went to work for the Gazette. But Stan was an interesting guy. His brother was Isaac Asimov. I was gonna say, I, how do I know that name? Yeah, his brother was Isaac. Yeah. So what was what was Isaac? Isaac was science fiction writer. Oh yes. yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, yeah. Pro, prolific science fiction writer, but probably one of the best. But but Stan was he was a really good guy. But uh, so anyways, I, I went up to the Gazette and, uh, um, you know, I was watching, you know, kept observing the news and, uh, um, you know, they hired a bunch of people in the career, but they didn't take advantage of um, a lot of their expertise. They were slotted in different areas. They weren't given decision making positions. And, and I thought I thought I thought they really lost out on some really good resources and they could have done things a little bit better. They didn't fill in and, and cover business any better than than the two papers were covering it before. They didn't they didn't really extend their their local coverage um, the way they could have, especially into Niagara County and the suburbs. Um, I thought they lost an opportunity to be an even stronger and better newspaper. But that's just one person's opinion that worked in the business. But um, so so then when. You know, the opportunity came to start business first. Uh, it was like, you know, yeah, let's let's do this. You know, uh, Gannett was was we- starting to wear on people. You know, I think I mentioned uh, earlier that USA Today had just started in uh, in early '72, and what happened was the Gazette uh, was one of uh, the Gannett company's many community newspapers. And uh, want to start USA Today, they needed to they needed a staff, and they needed it fast. So they started sort of drafting people from their community newspapers to work at USA Today. And um, uh, they took a couple of really good people from the Gazette, and that's one of the reasons I was hired up there is because they lost their news editor. And, um, uh, you know, people were finally getting to be a little bit tired of, uh, you know, working really long hours and and not not getting really much respect for what they were doing. And uh, so a lot of disgruntled people working at the Gazette, um, myself among them, not so much because I was happy to have a job. But mm-hmm. um, when the opportunity came to be the editor, the startup editor for Business First, it was like, yeah, I'll do this. And then I think I hired 11 or 12 people away from the Gazette within a three-month <laughs> period to work with me. And they were all people that I respected and, and, and knew as, as really good journalists. So the, so when we started Business First, we hit the ground running. I mean, we had a team that was that had worked together before that was really dedicated to strong journalism and uh, um, you know it was it was a godsend and and actually when we started business first it was another uh, called a paper called the Buffalo Business Journal uh, that started at uh, approximately the same time 
And uh, after about a year and a half, we ended up buying them and uh, merging them into Business First. And at the time, they also owned the Rochester Business Journal. We we purchased the Rochester Business Journal too. So, so I guess you know the the economy was the big big factor. Um, I think a little bit of um, uh, ego and and um, you know I don't want to call it malfeasance, but you know things got in the way and circumstances just came together and the career closed. And the first subscriber to Buffalo Business First was Mayor Jimmy Griffin. <laughs> I found that out in my research. Yeah, last well, night. Jimmy, you know he was. Uh, uh, I mean, you know, he wasn't real happy with us many times <laughs> either. So, so there's nothing new, but. Um, you know, he was, you know, he was never happy with the, with, uh, with the, the Buffalo snooze. news. Yeah. So he, you know, <clears throat> it is it, like many politicians. He was just more vocal about it and, uh, and forthcoming about it. But, uh, he was really happy when, when we were starting a newspaper because he wanted to talk about, you know, he wanted someone to be talking about the economic policies and what was going on in the, in the business side of things, because it's the only way you you know, you encourage people to to invest and, and get moving is supply some positive news to what's going on. I mean, there's a lot of negative news too, but you, so he was real happy to do it. And, and uh, you know, I, I wasn't a good friend of Jimmy's, but I, you know, I knew him and, and um, you know, he was, he was happy we were coming and doing what, uh, you know, what we were doing. So, he, you know, he, he, he was number one subscriber, number one, which and was great. Talk about when that started, the, the investors or the founders of it, it was a, it was a flyover, wasn't it? It was. They were from Kansas City. Uh, a guy named uh, Mike Russell, who was an insurance uh, insurance sales guy, and then uh, uh, Doc uh, Worley, who was a dentist. They were both uh, they were entrepreneurs. They you know they, their their positions gave them some some dough. So in Kansas City, um, they were investors in Kansas real estate investors in Kansas City. They they'd go in and they were they were ahead of their time with reuse. Um, and, uh, uh, they'd go in and, and find old buildings in Kansas city, redo them into office buildings and that type of stuff, but they weren't getting any, any press. Uh, the daily newspaper there wasn't, you know, wasn't covering what was going on. Uh, like most daily newspapers at the time, you know, they ran the stock, stock charts that ran five or six pages. Then they, they'd cover the, uh, you know, the largest, uh, largest two or three companies in the, in the community. Um, and that was about it. You know, small business didn't get any, uh, didn't get any press. Small business didn't get any, uh, any coverage whatsoever. Um, so they were frustrated by it and they decided, well, let's start our own little business newspaper, um, in Kansas city. They were familiar with a paper in St. Louis called the St. Louis business journal. A young guy, Mark Vittert, uh, had started that newspaper a couple of years before. So this is 19, let's see, probably 1980. Uh, around 80, 82, I think it was when they, this was going on, and and market uh, market had a publishing company when he was in college, and uh, he got bought out by Playboy, bought the bought it. Uh, uh, you know, you know, back then people were always selling subscriptions on campus. And he, he came up with this little concept, and and Playboy Enterprises bought it, and you know, paid him a few million dollars for it. So he was, <laughs> so he started this newspaper, and, and they liked the concept, and they they I don't know if they licensed it from him or what they did, but. Um, they said, well, we can do this similar. So they modeled it after, they modeled the Kansas City Business Journal after the St. Louis Business Journal. And uh, they said, you know, this is, you know, this is portable. We can, we can essentially um, franchise this or replicate it any, you know, anywhere. So then they started doing that and um, they were coming from um, Milwaukee. They had, they had started a paper, we were just in the, in, in the beginning of starting a paper in Milwaukee and and uh, they were coming, they were going flying to New York to meet with some potential investors. 
and uh, they, they asked the pilot to go over Niagara Falls. And it was it was just about dusk. And uh, as they're, they're coming coming over Lake Erie and, and heading heading towards the falls, uh, lights in the city were all coming on in the suburbs and that. And they asked, uh, you know, what's that down there? And, and, uh, and someone responded, well, it's Buffalo. Uh, we got to go over Buffalo to get to Niagara Falls. And they said, geez, we should put a paper there. And that was that was wow. the start of the conversation. Wow. You know, they uh, they made some contacts with uh, uh, with uh, uh, with uh, uh, Levy King and White at the time was the uh, ad agency, and um, uh, Bill Collins uh, was young uh, young uh, PR guy for them, and and they signed it to him, um, and Bill set up interviews and with with different community leaders and and uh, they flew in and met with probably a dozen different people including the mayor about possibility of putting a paper here and they all pledged their support and uh, so that was the decision was made that you, uh, that's what they're going to do can you talk a little bit about what the paper what the basis of the paper is because it it's like kind of like a necessity now now you need it's it, it's more unique than like the buffalo news because it's it serves a purpose, like not yeah. Like it, does. It, it, it was really des- it was really designed to provide it, uh, the news and information that you couldn't get anywhere else. So we weren't looking to replicate anything the Buffalo News was doing. We were, we were looking to do different things, you know, things that were new, unique. You know, the things that were unique to us were um, were small business coverage that was that was unique to us. Um, the lists, you know, top twenty five lists of this and that, mm-hmm. those were unique. Um, public record information. Nobody was publishing uh, mechanics liens or real estate transactions or uh, bankruptcies. Th- those things were all private. You know, no, you could find them. They were they were public information, but you had to go and dig them out yourself. No one was digging it out and putting it in a newspaper for people to read. So those were a few of the unique things immediately. Um, and then we we looked at it as a you know how is it how could a business person use it as a tool. You know, so we did the people on the move, uh, so you could see, you know, who was who was moving up and around in different companies. Um, so we would actually have little seminars for subscribers to say, "Come on in, uh, we're going to give you coffee and you know a sweet roll, and we're going to we're going to teach you how to use this newspaper for your business. It's it's it really is a tool for you to use to help you grow your business, uh, maybe to inspire you to do something different. Maybe you you know maybe there's somebody you can sell something to that's that's you know, that's talked about in the paper. So there was a real reason. It was, it was to provide another source of information that wasn't being provided to the community. Yeah. And like for you personally, like getting a paper running and then like being successful with it, having the tools, like did people approach you to be like, Hey, let's start this other paper. Let's do this. Let's do. Or... Yeah. I, I had some conversations with, with people, uh, the, the economics of the problem was the economics of a daily newspaper. And it was like a question that was, that I was asked probably for the first five, five to 10 years we were doing what we were doing was, you know, why not just start? Why don't you guys go daily? Why don't you start another newspaper? Well, the economics of it are, are, are such that it's, it's almost impossible. It'd be almost impossible to start another newspaper, another daily newspaper from scratch without, wanting to lose a lot of money doing it mm-hmm. you know one of the things the buffalo news did when um when the courier express closed the, uh, the buffalo news purchased the courier express's presses so the day after the courier closed the buffalo news owned those presses and they went in and they didn't and they basically scrapped the presses they destroyed them they they weren't looking to refurbish them and sell them to anybody okay. else they went in and destroyed those presses and then sold the scrap so what that did was that guaranteed that they were now the only the only player in ah. town. 
on, on that scale. Yeah, you could go to some smaller printers that could print some right. newspapers. You know, print you know print fifteen thousand of our newspapers, but you weren't going to print one hundred and twenty thousand you know copies per day and four hundred thousand on a Sunday with you know using a, a contract printer. It just wasn't economically feasible, and the capacity wasn't there. So so there was no way you could you could really start another daily newspaper in Buffalo in 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 that way. And when we closed, when when the courier closed, I mean, there was no internet. I mean, there really there was no there was no email. There there was no World Wide Web. None of that existed. So you didn't have you know you didn't have an alternative source to uh, communicate with people, um, especially with news the way you can now. So so starting a, starting another paper just economically didn't didn't make sense. The great thing about Business First when we first started. Uh, we broke even our first year, and then we were profitable every year after that. And, and I'm pretty sure the That's paper amazing. has continued since I left. And um, you know, I I got approached early on from because I was familiar with the unions and and in uh, town they knew me and and uh, through my through my dad and, and my brother and that and, and they came and said, you know, why aren't you a union shop like the, the news is? And I said, well, we're paying our benefits and and and, and wages are equal to what's the news you know if, if people are dissatisfied they're more than welcome to to organize uh, and I actually t- invited them in and said if you want to come in and talk to my employees you know feel free you know there's only 30 of us 28 of us maybe at the time I said come in and talk to them and if they want to go in that direction they'll go in that direction the one good thing there was half of those employees I had hired uh, personally and brought with me so I felt responsible for them, and if they wanted to go in that direction, they were free to go in that direction. They chose the unions. Never, never, never challenged us again. They never came in. They never, um, you know, they never talked about it. Uh, my my folks never talked about it, and you know, I think we provided people with a pretty good, uh, pretty good living wage and and uh, pretty good benefits package for for um, for the my my entire tenure there, which was. You know, I'm pretty proud of that because yeah. uh, it's it's hard to you know it's hard for business depending on what you're focused on. Yeah. How um, many employees do they have now? Uh, they're, they're still hovering around 30, 30 31, something like that. You wow. know, with, and we had the Law Journal also. Um, you know, after our first year when we bought the we bought the uh, Buffalo Business Journal, the, our competitor, the Law Journal came along with it, and we've run the Law Journal since. So the two combined, anywhere I think maybe our high was 34, 35 people, and it's back down to thirty two. You know, as, as things become more automated and in that, you know, and then through attrition, you uh, uh, you know you're able to um, to, to manage your, your your workforce. But um, no, there really hasn't been anything to exp- any reason to expand it much much further at this it's point. Impressive though, yeah. you know, thirty three years. That we always say it shows a lot of character <laughs> when you're at a place for a lot for a long time. It's, well, it's that's great. you know that and that's that's probably one of the things I was most proud. Well, I was there thirty almost thirty four years, and then you know I just uh, uh, I've been working with the team on this Buffalo Homecoming initiative and. Um, uh, Donna Collins, who was I, w- I was employee number one. She was employee number two. Uh, Donna just celebrated her thirty thirty uh, fifth year um, at Business First. Uh, but I got you know Jim Fink's there thirty years, um, if not longer. Uh, Jeff Wright's there twenty three or twenty four years. I mean the tenure of our our staff is just incredible. I, uh, I was talking to one of the sales folks the other day, and and uh, you know she said, oh you know I've been here twenty years. I go. I remember hiring, you know, it seemed like it was yesterday, you know, so we've got that, we've got that kind of tenure there. And, um, and that's what makes, uh, makes for a great team, uh, you know, team play, you know, it's not like, unlike a family where you, 
<laughs> you have, have your differences from time to time. But everyone's focused on the same thing. It's being successful, providing a great product, and, uh, and, and meeting the needs of the subscribers in the community. And, and that's the other thing we were always involved with was community. Uh, everybody, uh, pretty much everybody that worked there was involved in some outside activity, you know, some nonprofit board or, or supporting some initiative that was, uh, that was raising money in the community or, or tackling some type of a problem. So, so that was important, too. And we got to be known for being there for these many of these organizations over the years and helping them any way we could you know we always didn't have money to give them but we had time and we had talent that we could give to them and we had space in the paper and that made a, that made a big difference to people they they appreciated that they weren't getting that from the daily newspaper they, they were getting it from us uh, you know they get a check every once in a while from the daily newspaper because of the kind of money they were producing but uh, you know we were we were really proud of the fact that our people were involved and and you get to know more people in the community like a you, mom you, and pop shop yeah I mean you get to, you get to know more people. They get to know you. They get to trust you. Um, we were doing these meet and greet things with our staff, you know, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, before anybody, you know, daily newspaper, even thought about doing it. So we'd, we'd take our reporters and our editors and we'd, we'd go to a chamber of commerce meeting or we'd go, we'd get, we'd, we'd have some business group gather a bunch of people together and we'd meet all these people one on one. Makes a huge difference when you're, when you're, you know, trying to, Put together a story or you're selling advertising they know you they feel like they know you and that you care about them and we did you know so it's it, made a difference he's not lying mark for the last 20 years i've seen business first always had uh fundraisers and galas and things like that they've they've always been uh their hand on their pulse within the community and you guys did a good job with that jack still do thanks um and now we're getting into the late 80s we got a little digital age coming on, and there's there's a crash around eighty nine ninety, isn't there? Yeah, that was uh, yeah right, right late late eighties, early nineties. It was um, uh, it was pretty ugly. It wasn't quite the recession that we had uh, you know ten years ago, but um, it was um, it, it was it was bad. But the amazing thing was we didn't we didn't lose a step with the newspaper. We we kept right on. We didn't cut staff. We didn't do anything. We just we just kept covering what was happening and, and moving forward. And you know, you mentioned the digital. Uh, you know, you started. We did start moving into the digital age more more than before. We really didn't have a digital product in the in the late '80s, early '90s. But um, but you were you know you had email. You could communicate more effectively. Um, you know, it wasn't you know you weren't getting 200 emails a day like you know like when I left, but you know, you'd, you'd get a few that were important. You know, the ones that you get would be important. You know, it's like the fax machine. You know, something came over the fax. You know, it had to be it had to be important. <laughs> and uh, uh, I mean, we still had fax machines up until you know the, the mid two thousands. You know, for for certain clients, especially with the law journal. But um, but digital age made made a big difference. Um, you know, you, you fast forward a little bit, and and most newspapers started having a digital presence. Uh, it could have been just a little newsletter. It could have been you know, a push email. It could have been a lot of different things, um, but then creating, you know, creating a website where you're where you're where you're putting your product up up and out. Um, uh, a few strategic mistakes that the media made. I, I think they didn't ch- start charging for it immediately. You know, in, in the early early stages, everybody expected everything to be free, anyways. Um, what is as time's gone by, <clears throat> you know, everybody has paywalls of some sort. You know, Business First has a partial paywall, so maybe maybe twenty twenty five percent of the stories are 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 free, 
and then the other the other uh, the balance is, is you know you'd have to have a subscription um, you know there's all kinds of different models out there you know the New York Times and Wall Street Journal and them have been probably most successful with the paywall as, as far as uh, uh, gaining subscribers I think the Buffalo News this week is I think they're charging what a dollar a week or something like that for uh, uh, up to six months of digital access which is a, a big a big strategy of theirs of course it comes on the heels they just announced I think the other day that they're going to start charging two dollars for a daily paper and four dollars for a Sunday paper well let, let's get into the, the news are they are they on their last leg it seems to me like I pick up the newspaper yeah, what's the future on Tuesday and Wednesday I couldn't even train a puppy w- w- with their content. I mean, what's going on here? <laughs> you know, I, 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 well, it's a lack of it's a lack of advertising, and, and you have to look at, um, you know, one of the things that we, we used to talk about when we went to, when you went to a digital product, uh, and and they charge for their product now. You you have to have you get x number of free stories, and then you have to you know to get more access, you have to pay for it uh, or subscribe to it. And um, the problem you have is in, in a printed product. Uh, you're charging dollars for for your advertising. In a, in, a, in a digital product, you're charging dimes. So in order to, you know, in your biggest expense, pretty much, um, at least at our, at our paper, the, the scale that we had, uh, is, is your people, is your, is your payroll, is your professionals. Uh, it's the people who produce the news, uh, the people who, who write the stories, take the photographs. And... That's not going to go away. You can't you can't expect quality journalism uh, if you're going to pay somebody fifteen bucks an hour. It's not going to happen. It's just you know you can't live on that, and it's it's just not going to happen. So so what's you know one of the the, the conundrum is you know how do you keep a high quality staff and pay for pay them uh, and cost a lot of money to print in a newspaper now uh, and print newspapers um, and make money. It's just uh, it's the equation is 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 broken, and, and how do you do it? Um, so that's why a lot of a lot of um, a lot of print publications have gone to strictly to digital. But you have to sell a lot more advertising on digital to pay for the quality staff for the content, uh, and that's the, you know that was one of the big mistakes um, the media made early on. They were giving their content away. They were giving their product away, whether it was to people coming to their site. Or they were giving it to aggregators who were, you know, uh, who were who were out there. Um, we were one of the f- few few companies, American City Business Journals, at the time. Um, um, Microsoft Networks was wanted to use um, our our content from around the country because we had a whole network. We had forty almost forty papers at the time, so we were in every major city, every the most secondary, you know, tier two paper, two tier cities also, and, and they wanted it. And they wanted it for free, and they said, "Oh, we were going to give you all this exposure. We're going to get all this business because you know we're 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 promoting it." You know, MSN is you know pretty much non-existent now, but uh, but we said no. If you want it, you got to pay for it. You know, we we, we have for to you. pay to produce it, and and uh, so we had a couple of these uh, relationships uh, with news aggregators for a while, but they, they fell by the wayside. I mean, they just didn't want it. There was other people that were willing to give it away for free, and then you had a whole series of of different companies that. Uh, um, started up as, as um, digital sources of news, and they they set up little you know little satellite offices in all these cities with maybe one reporter who would go out and write a story a story a, a, a week or a couple stories a week, and you know they aggregate it all and say we got all this wonderful local news from all over the country. Where 
they didn't have much of anything to be honest but we went up there <laughs> it's a ghost town i think yeah. the security guard <laughs> the lunch lady and this guy that was interviewing us and that was it and the carpets are from the, the, the 70s it seemed like Jim Kurtzel was saying that it's like a, some for, like the architecture of the buildings like very unique, like it's only one of like so many in the country. So they're like the, the building might stand forever just because of our architectural people like who prefer preservation. Yeah, they, they they've been leasing space out in there, and 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 it comes down to you know one of the one of the biggest departments in all in all daily newspapers used to be the classified advertising department. Yeah, that was that was you know where you had the most. Most employees focused, other than the newsroom, was in it, uh, in classified advertising, and you know that that's the other big source of revenue that went away for daily newspapers is classified advertising. You know, every, you know everybody's on you know Craig's Facebook list. Marketplace, Craigslist, eBay, uh, you name it. People aren't selling aren't selling things, you know, by putting a, a um, an ad in the classified ad in the in the daily newspaper and, and you know that's you don't think of that be, as being a large source of revenue but i i bet it represented probably just a guess maybe 20 25 percent of the, their total ad, their advertising revenue at one point i mean because there used to be pages and pages in the buffalo news i mean that's where you went to look for an apartment you know courier yeah, too yeah. when the couriers business but if you were looking for an apartment or you're looking to buy a used car or whatever you went to the classified pages to look for it and that that's pretty much gone and um, you know, it's it, again, it's hard. You take a big hit to that type of advertising, and you know, when you still have a payroll that has X number of people on it, you still have to meet that payroll, or you've got to, you know, you've got to cut it. And yeah. you know, they've, and it, it, you know, and you try not to cut. You know, they say non-essential. Who's non-essential? Rod Watson. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, it, it's one of those things where, you know, someone has to make that decision decision about non-essential. And, um, you know, you wouldn't have been hired in the first place if, if you weren't essential. So, you know, who knows what, what uh, how they define that in different, in different locations. But, um, but you need, you need, you know, you really do need a place where, where people can debate issues. You need those columnists, um, you know, whether, whether they irk you or they don't, you know, you, you need to, I mean, everybody used to love to hate Jerry Sullivan, you know, and, uh, yeah. and now, now he's like revered cause he's with the athletic, you know, and you know, it's those types of things where, uh, things come around and go around and, and, um, you know, you need curmudgeon people to, you know, to, to ex express yeah. so you uh, see everyone's this, opinion. So you see this paper sticking around forever. It, it's cause I like in I, way, shape, some way, shape or form, because you can't, I, I don't, I don't know how, you know, one of the, one of the, my opinion one of the reasons we're in the situation we're in with with the temperament of of uh, of, of of the country with especially when is in regards to uh, uh, politics is is because there aren't enough sources of information out there or people are people are picking sides because it's easy to pick sides it's you know all right i'm going to watch fox news all day because i i really agree with hannity uh, or I'm going to watch MSNBC because, you know, I want to see Mika in the morning, you know, whatever it is, um, people are picking sides and, 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 and you're, you're get you're getting, um, uh, I'd say not a, not a well-rounded dose of what's really happening out there. You're not really seeing it from every side. Uh, and some people never want to, you know, they want to hear, you know, they want to be their own echo chamber. They want to hear people talk the way they talk and think the way they think. 
Um, but you really need, you know, you really need some type of civilized discourse to, to move things forward. And without a daily newspaper, you lose a major, major voice, you know, whether it's, you know, you know, someplace, you know, all of a sudden Marty, Marty Farrell doesn't have someplace to write letters to because right. the news is gone. Um, but, you know, where's he going to publish those? And you'll never get an audience at large again. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for many people, it's, you know, it, it really has to be um, advocates for different policies and that really need an outlet to, to have their opinions um, heard and seen. And, and I think, you know, the, the end of daily newspapers would be horrendous. You know, uh, th- this guy in the White House now who, who keeps demonizing <laughs> the, uh, the media is, uh, I, I think that's a really dangerous, dangerous game he's playing. And I, oh, yeah. and I, and I uh, you know, ho- I wish he would stop it or, or get somebody else in there that would uh, uh, respect what the media's job is and what they do, and it's to inform. You know, if, if you know, just think of what, what this guy could be doing if there was nobody on his tail all the time, you know, calling him out on stuff. I mean, it would be horrendous. I mean, uh-huh. you know, so so the press, free press, has a, has a place to play and an important part to play in the country. And, and I, you know, as much as I've disagreed with the news over the years, and that I would never wish that they went away. I, yeah. I had a con- oh, yeah. I had a conversation with um, with a, a uh, um, one of the general managers of a new, actually news director of a, a local TV station a couple of years ago, and uh, they did a series on, you know. When you know everybody was you know echoing this you know death death of daily newspapers you know they're all dying they're all going to go away, and I'm not sure who it was one of the reporters was but he did like a three part series on it and and he was sort of joyful about the fact that the Buffalo News might close and I I called the called the news editor who I knew I said I said John why why didn't somebody edit this I said this is absolutely horrendous journalism. I said, think about think about your newscast today, and I had watched it. I said, you had you had eight eight local stories on on your newscast, and I said, seven of them were stories that came from stories that had been printed in the Buffalo News earlier in the week. <laughs> right. I said it wasn't I was it wasn't enterprise reporting on the part of your reporting staff. I said, what are you going to use for a source of news? Right. If the daily newspaper goes away because you're relying on it almost ninety percent of the time. And he goes, Well yeah I go I go stop. Why I don't understand why yeah. you're so joyful about a daily newspaper, a competitor comp- closing because you steal from them all the time you know and it was like he didn't want to talk about it anymore and the same thing yeah. with same thing with uh with radio um you know tim wenger up at, at, at wben is a great guy and and I, I really liked him but we had conversations over the years i mean they they would just steal our stories every morning and no attribution and that and finally we just said hey you know, we're going to have to take some type of action if you if you don't give us attribution. We don't we don't mind you saying you know it's published in Business First this week or a Business First set or, or something like that. But but don't get on the air and, and pretend that one of your reporters wrote this story or discovered this. Uh, and the same thing. I mean, they use the daily newspaper all the time for as a yeah. source for what they have to do because I get daily newspaper has a, a, a you know cadre of of professionals that are out there. You know, beating the bushes every day for stories. Because yeah, uh, you'd think about it now, uh, you used to have to pick up the paper to see what the president says, and now he's on Twitter. Yeah, you yeah. know, he's not using the that outlet. No, no, and it's and it, what a, what a terrible way to, you know, I, I hate to say it, but I follow him on Twitter, and it's just like every day you just 
bang your head against the wall. And I just had a thought. Yes, I go. Wouldn't it be great if Twitter just shut down? Yeah. I mean, if they just said we're going to take, we're, we're going to take, that. we're going to take a hiatus for a month or two months or something. Um, you know, maybe you know, maybe uh, two months before the twenty twenty election or something. They just shut them down. Shut it down. It, it's it's just like you know. I'm thinking probably a little bit too partisan, but it's like, you know shut the how do you shut this guy up you know i mean it's just especially when he makes no sense but we won't get into that yeah. anymore. the fake news <laughs> the fake news well stuff. yeah I, I wanted to ask you the the fake news like obviously the guy's a knucklehead probably 99 percent of the time it are you seeing though that there there are stories people in this country are just running stories that aren't true at all no no and it's it, it's there's a there's a piece I, I can't remember it verbatim, but it was a piece I, I shared on Facebook. I like to share things on Facebook, but it was about you know. So you're telling me that that people who've dedicated their their entire lives and their education to science, and people who've dedicated their entire career in 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 uh, uh, in their education to journalism and and any number of different things are all making things up because <laughs> they, they don't like you. It's just like come on, yeah. It, you know it's. It, it, you know, do reporters get things wrong? Absolutely. You know, this New York Times story uh, uh, the other day uh, about Kavanaugh, who is, yeah. I think is a scumbag, but, um, you know, they're being torn apart because uh, they didn't mention that the uh, uh, the person who made the person who, who supposedly made the accusations is anonymous, doesn't want their name used, and and didn't want to talk to them. Well, they should have they should have revealed that. You know, and the problem is when, you know, when you do that, when you omit those types of things, it's, it's really a sin of omission. Is is and and you shouldn't you shouldn't be reporting. Somebody should have caught that. An, an editor should have caught that before it before it made its way into the newspaper. But those things are the things that, you know, so the the 100,000 things that, that you did right, you did yeah. one thing wrong, and, and that's held up as, as being the, the, uh, the, the, the quality of what you do. And it's, um, you know, it's people make mistakes. The big, the big difference is, make, you know, admitting your mistakes. And if you don't admit your mistakes, and I think the Times came out and, and, and clearly admitted they made a mistake, um, that makes a difference. It gives you more credibility. It's like... You know, you ask for forgiveness, and and nine times out of ten, you'll get it as long as somebody wasn't hurt. But, but the, you know, the media sometimes has to watch themselves. I mean, they have to be have to be probably be more diligent than they've ever been in getting the facts right and making sure. That, you know, but there is that there's a, a certain percentage of the population now that have been so browbeaten by this guy um, that they're not going to believe anything they read. Right. And that's to the detriment of the company, the, the country. That's why I, I went back. But they'll, they'll you know they'll listen to. To Hannity or someone like that, and they go, "Oh yeah, this yeah, he must have uh, mm -hmm. he had three heads at one time." <laughs> well, and, and you bring him up. I like my news guys to be right down the middle. Do you think now we're seeing uh, more of a political opinion come out in guys' works, or has that always been there? And I'm just noticing it now. No, I think you're seeing more of it, but people have, there's 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 less of a distinction now between uh, opinion writing and uh, and straight news writing. And and people will will uh, you I th I think you have to and we've I've always been conscious of this. If someone has something to say, um, and, and it's not a story, it's an opinion. You have to label it as an opinion. You have to tell people, hey, this is a this is this guy's opinion. This is not 
a news story, mm-hmm. um, you know, and they may base it off of news events that they've seen or, or whatever. But you have to make that distinction. And, and a lot of readers don't make that distinction. We always used to talk about, um, we hated doing um, what we called um, uh, advertising uh, um, editorial, uh, ad- advertorial it was called. So, you know, we always made sure that it was in a different font than anything else we, we, we wrote. We made sure it said advertisement on top of it. Um, but essentially, you're, you know, you're letting an advertiser write their own story. And we, we shied away from it as much as we possibly could. But we wanted to make a distinction that this wasn't a story that we wrote. This isn't a story that we think is real important to you because if it was, we'd put a reporter's name on it and and, and such. Um, but people read that stuff and they don't necessarily make the distinction. They don't. Right. They don't look at the details like we look at it. So they'll, you know, someone would come up to me and say, "Hey, I, you know, I read this story about the, the Jones and Company. Boy, that's great what they're doing. All these wonderful things." And it was an advertorial. It was like, "Yeah, well, this is Jones and Company telling you all the wonderful things they're doing. Mm-hmm. Not, yeah. not somebody, you know, you know, they're telling, well, the first ever to introduce this product. Well, they're like the hundred and fiftieth ever introduced that product. <laughs> you know, that yeah. kind of stuff. So you're dealing with that all the time." But but that's where that's distinctions have to be made between opinion and editorial. You know, is is um, you know, uh, Morning Joe on MSNBC um, uh, straight news? No, I mean it's 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 opinion. It's it's all conjecture and opinion. And you know, they got the experts on who are giving their opinion about the, the somebody else's opinion. So it's not that's not straight news. It's when you know someone someone says you know today in in uh, in, in Iran you know. Uh, the centrifuges were bombed. You know that's news. You know right. that's not mm-hmm. anybody you know taking something from one side to the other. Or, you know, at the corner of Bloomfield and South Park, uh, you know, a car ran through the front of nine uh, eleven. Uh, you know, chicken wings are all over. Well, the we're not <laughs> that lucky. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but oh, but it's yeah. but you know that's news. And an opinion is in. Oh, by the way, I don't like their chicken wings. You know? yeah. <laughs> right. so, yeah, that's a, right. yeah. So it's yeah. you know, people have to make that distinction. People, many people don't because they're. Uh, um, they already have their mind made up, and and you know, no matter if so and so writes that story, I know it's not going to be true. Right. Where does Jack Connors go for his news? I always say the longest uh, news agency is the AP, so I always look at the AP when there's something going on with an election or something because they never called it for Bush back then. If you remember, yeah, they they said it wasn't over yet. So I always go to the AP. Where does Jack Connors go for his news? Uh, I, I look at the Buffalo News. Um, uh, it brings it back home. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, business first for local, uh, pretty much yeah. for local. For national, I'll look at the New York Times or Washington Post. Um, I, 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 look, I do look at some of the aggregating sites. Uh, I'll look at Huffington Post sometimes. Uh, actually, I look at them every day just to see what's going on. Not that I'm a big fan of Mariana Huffington, but I, I think it's an interesting place. Then I've got that news site that's on most Apple devices where you can pick and choose all your sources. Yeah. And um, and I, in there I have a, a whole uh, slew of conservative, middle of the road, and and, and uh, progressive sites that I look at. And I, I read all the story. I read the Fox stories and, and just to yeah. see what they're – and unfortunately most of the Fox stuff that they put on there is not news. It's, it's more opinion than – than anything right. else but so but you have to you have to take in both sides you know i mean that's one of the things that um you, know, you used to be able to sit and sit at a bar and have a beer and, and debate with somebody now yeah. you sit at a bar and have a beer and you yell at each other it, oh, it's yeah. not, there's not a, there's no reasoning with people and it's you know you used to be able to reason i mean we used to hang around over at the, um, at the ounce and a half and 
and uh, we probably talked uh, more politics than we've talked talked anything else. And it was a lot. There's always a lot to talk about when it came to that. But everybody respected everybody else's opinion. You know, I mean, you thought that, I thought this. Yeah, great. Let's have another beer. You know, yeah. I mean, it was there was no, uh, you know, screw you, I'm out of here. You know, you're an asshole. And we're, you know, let's keep moving. It, it was just, you know, you, you had a conversation. And uh, it's hard to have conversations sometimes with people, sometimes with family, sometimes with, you know, parents. I mean, you know, there's, there's everybody's got an opinion now and they don't want to back down from their opinion. They don't want to they don't want to give in. And, and it's that's not good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you look at business first. I wanted to bring up one of the things I always like to read in that publication is the 40 under 40. Talk to us about how the 40 under 40 started, because, I mean, a lot of people we know, they are the third. Yeah. The, is it thirty under thirty or forty? Oh, we do 40? both. We do okay. both. Yeah, yeah. Okay, because yeah. I know I know some of these guys. Who, oh, they did, have to get into forty under forty. Yeah, or, and how did that start? Yeah. Well, actually, um, a, a magazine in St. Louis started uh, uh, started the, the, a forty under forty, and our paper there then adapted it. And they 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 published the magazine. It was like a lifestyle magazine. And then it was just like, well, this is a great idea because we were looking at our demographics. We, you know, we, we, we would do our readership surveys every uh, two years at the time. And uh, I, I'm looking at this demographic and all of a sudden I'm seeing it's, it's aging with me. And, you know, here I am 55 and the average age of our reader is 55. Uh, and I'm going, that's not good, not good for the future. And we've got to, we got to move the needle down. We've got to get younger readers, you know, picking this, this paper up and, in, in, in looking at it or going on the website and looking at it. And we thought maybe the best way is to look at all the, all the, all the people under 40 that are out there that are uh, contributing back to the community. I mean, you know, people that are on boards or they're, they're helping. Uh, and, and we look more than just, you know, are you, you know, did you make it, you know, partner of your law firm before, uh, before you turned 40, you know, that was part of it, but that was only a small part of it. And we, we wanted to see what people were doing in the community to, to help the community. And whether it was, you know, with a nonprofit or some type of initiative they were working on, you know, they did they work for, you know, help build houses for Habitat for Humanity or whatever it was. But we just thought they, they need a recognition. They weren't getting recognition in the daily newspaper. They weren't getting recognition from any other media. And we thought, well, let's let's start this and let's, let's see see where it goes. And now we're, we're like probably more than 30 years into it, I think. Um a lot of our thirty under thirty are, are uh, or forty under forty are close <laughs> mid seventies. But that but, does that kind of ties into the, our, that Buffalo homecoming then, right? Because that's like a lot of those people it, that it, are successful. It, it it does, you know. And then we did thirty under thirty because there's a lot of really uh, really neat things happening in our community. Our community has become, I don't, I think on paper, if you look at it, I don't think it's actually become younger. But I think you've got a lot more passion. Uh, with with people uh, un, under forty and under thirty for the community and wanting to stay here and make it better so they can raise their families here and and have what uh, what they had when they were younger and, and what their parents had. Um, so so homecoming came out of um, um, it came out. It was interesting. It was probably about two years ago, almost exactly two years ago. I had I had breakfast with Dave Egner um, from the Wilson, he's the uh, president and CEO of the Wilson Ralph Wilson Jr. Foundation. And I had met Dave uh, when when the foundation first started about a year before that because I think they've only been in existence now three years, and um, and Dave and I were having having uh, having breakfast and he said you know, we were talking about a bunch of different stuff and he said, you know they've got this initiative in in Detroit I'd like you to take a look and see if it's something that you'd want to do 
at business first or, or be involved in. And then he said, and, and I want you personally to think about it. And um, I said, all right. So he, he told me all about it. And I went, I was with my editor, Jeff Wright. And I said, Dave, this is phenomenal. I said, I think we, you know, I, I would do it in a heartbeat. I said, but I'm retiring <laughs> in like three months, four months. And my editor looked at me and goes, you're retiring? I go, yeah. He goes, oh, <laughs> okay. So so I just told Dave, I said, look, you know, I'm not sure who's going to be my successor. So why don't I do this? Let's put it on the back burner a little bit. You know, send me some more information about it or I'll seek some more information out. And um, so when my successor was named, John Tebow, uh, first thing I did, and this was before John even met the staff and was announced to the staff, I said, you got to, I took him aside for about half an hour and gave him the rundown on, Buffalo homecoming, I said, you got to consider, you know, helping to organize this. I said, it just makes sense. It's, it, it positions the paper well. It, it reflects on what we've been doing all these years. And, um, uh, you know, you, you need to, to, to think about it and uh, talk to your powers that be now that, you know, what, what do they think about it? Um, so he did. And about two months after he was named, he, he called me up and said, you know, we want to do this. Um, you know, can you get a hold of Wagner at uh, the Wilson Foundation? So I gave Dave a call and said, look, we're, we're, we want to do it. Let's meet. And uh, Wilson Foundation uh, offered to underwrite a large portion of it, uh, the expense of doing it, and um, uh, took off from there. We, we, uh, um, we met with... Uh, Delaware North, and they were uh, they were looking for something to do with, within the community and fit their profile. We met with uh, um, Shelley Drake and the folks at the uh, uh, M and T Charitable Foundation, and and, and uh, the, they liked the idea. So the whole concept is to is to identify and uh, invite home uh, expats, people who've left Buffalo and Western New York, and and uh, and, and and have become successful elsewhere, uh, but that we know still. I have a passion for where they grew up and it wasn't just if you were born and raised here it was if you spent any you know if you went to school here or if uh, uh, maybe you spent some some of your you know professional career here you were transferred in here from from Oklahoma City or something and you you know when when they were you were told it was time to leave Buffalo you didn't want to go uh, so there's a lot of those people out there so we started putting together a database of of people we uh, we ex we we thought would fit the profile um, there right, was a couple of those guys names off well, the top uh, of your head. Uh, Trey Borzarelli, who's uh, produced some shows for uh, uh, for Netflix. Uh, Howard Bloom. Howard was uh, left Buffalo in the early uh, uh, the early '60s and uh, worked at Roswell Park as a researcher out of college, and uh, went on to uh, um, to advise and manage uh, Billy Joel and Sticks and Prince and AC/DC and. Oh. Whole whole slew of uh, people in the entertainment industry, prolific writer, um, pretty, pretty much a Renaissance person. I just last article I read by him was in Scientific American of all places. Um, so you know, real interesting guy lives in Brooklyn. Um, we had uh, uh, Will Crosby, who uh, young guy who uh, works for a law firm I think in Philadelphia. Um, you know, Adam Thompson, Dave Rasmussen, who's out of Boston in real estate. I mean, just a whole slew of different people. Uh, Mar South Buffalonian, Margie, Margie Hempling McGlynn. Um, Margie grew up over on Hollywood and, uh, her dad owned Hempling's pharmacy down, down here on Salt Park. And, um, 
Marjorie graduated from UB Pharmacy School and uh, went on to a, a really uh, interesting career at Merck. Uh, she was head of, uh, uh, of international vaccines for Merck. So she worked in third world countries and that when she, when she retired a couple of years ago, she set up a family foundation um, and, uh, and has been investing back in research at, at UB through the pharmacy school um, and lives, lives in outside of Philadelphia now. Um, so a whole group of different people. And, and, we, and we wanted people who, if they saw what was happening here in Buffalo, you know, everybody's been reading about it in uh, both uh, national and international press about, you know, best place to live, you know, best food, this, that, and the other thing, good quality of life, uh, uh, those types of things. Um, so there's a heightened, heightened awareness of Buffalo and, and some type of renaissance, something going on here. Uh, everyone wasn't sure. So we, our goal was to get about 100 back the first year. We got 60, which I think was pretty good. Um, and, uh, you know, we had three, uh, three days. Uh, started with a dinner on a Wednesday, or actually late afternoon on Wednesday with a, a tour of the medical campus. About, uh, about uh, 50 people went on that, ca- on that tour. Then that evening we had a dinner at the Jacobs Medical School for, for about 180 people. Um, talked a lot about, uh, had different different panels talking about the medical campus and the research being done there, the future of healthcare in Western New York, the importance of the medical campus. Then on uh, Wednesday or Thursday, we had a full day of programming at Riverworks. We started in the morning with panel discussions on equity and diversity, uh, workforce development, uh, the startup ecosystem, because that's that's so important in what's going on here. Sports, we had uh, Eric Brady, uh, Buffalonian who uh, wrote sports at the Courier Express. And then when that closed, he went to USA Today, spent 30, 35 years at wow. USA Today. He came back and interviewed Ron Rakuya uh, about uh, the Bills and Sabres and what's going on. So we had some really good d- discussions, 25 minutes long. That was it. We didn't want to bore people forever. Um, a lot of different uh, uh, videos. We had a great video from uh, Jeffrey Gunlock. Um, he's probably the poster child of expats. You know, he's the guy who's uh, has committed forty-two million dollars to the expansion of the Albright Knox uh, Art Ooh. Gallery. Um, grew up in on Harlem Road out in uh, uh, out out in Williamsville. Um, been probably one of the most successful bond traders and investment guys. Owns a company called Double Line Investing. Um, he did a video for us because he couldn't be here. Uh, he was in Europe and. Um, uh, he he, uh, uh, he basically said, you know, I grew up here. I I love the city. I love this. You know, you know, I when uh, he said I do the triathlon every time I get back to Buffalo. You know, I I go to Ted's. I go to I, <laughs> I go to Ted's. I go to Duff's, and then I go to Charlie the Butcher. You know, and uh, you know he stops in these places and um, just a, a a terrific guy. And, you know, he said he'll be here next year for sure. It's on his calendar. But uh, you know, it was seven minute long video we had uh, produced by John Paget, who's done a lot of the Buffalo videos. And um, uh, it's on, it's actually on the buffalohomecoming.com uh, website right now. It's, it's, it's residing there. But, but those are the types of people we wanted to get back. People who, if they decided they could make an impact immediately, they could invest in Buffalo. They could, you know, they could buy some real estate. They could invest in a, in a startup company. They could write a check uh, for philanthropy to, you know, the American Red Cross or, or, or the Darwin Martin House or whatever their choice would be. They, they could make a difference immediately. They didn't have to write a check for $100,000. Uh, but becoming more aware, I think, gives us a way to communicate back to them what's happening here. And that's one of the things we're going to do. We, we, we'll put together a newsletter that'll, that'll be just for those expats that were here. 
Um, next year, we hope to get that 100 or, or more. We've got, uh, we have 100 expats that we had direct contact with and had conversations with who weren't able to make it because of, um, uh, because of scheduling conflicts. But we've got a database of 650 now uh, oh, that we great. think are, are, uh, are, are, uh, are, we're looking forward to. I mean, a couple other South Buffalo guys, uh, Gary Zazula, um, uh, grew up all, over off of South Park. Um, uh, uh, Tommy Tommy Cruiser, who grew up over on Woodside. Oh yeah. Uh, Timmy Leary, who grew up on, on McKinley. You know, we, we invited those guys back. They had scheduling conflicts, but those are guys that have been they've become successful. You know, where uh, I think they're both on in Connecticut right now. But you know, th- those are the types of folks we want to get back. So the age of our expats that came back, I think Howard Bloom was the oldest at seventy six. Uh, I know we had a couple guys that were in their, uh, under thirty. Uh, that came back, you know, successful wherever they've been, and and uh, and hopefully they en- enjoyed their their time here. Um, but in the afternoon, we did tours on Thursday. We took people on a waterfront tour. Um, uh, 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 Rick Hillman and his his crew on the Buffalo River History Tour. They they took the boat. Uh, uh, down the river and and out into the harbor with uh, Jill Jedlicka from the River Keepers and uh, um, uh, Steve Rinelli from uh, Canal Side were on the boat to explain what's happening there. We had um, an East Side tour. Um, the state has a an East Side investment fund with sixty five million dollars in it now. I've seen so, that. So yeah, so they're so they're they've identified a couple of I think three or four corridors. And the east side, where they're looking for investment, you know, Northland is is one of them. We had we stopped at Northland. We stopped at uh, um, uh, Harmac, John Summers' operation over on Bailey Avenue and Bailey Green, um, his initiative there. And then we uh, went to the Central Terminal. Uh, we did a, a, an architecture one. We went to the Darwin Martin House, and we went up to Phillips Lytle. They've got a great terrace on their top floor where you can literally look out and see all the way down south park and then look look north towards the peace bridge and you can see you could actually see uh, uh niagara falls clearly uh the day we were up there last thursday so so we gave them a, a a rundown of everything that was happening but we also basically showed them what the challenges were you know we're we're not we're not anywhere near we need need to be with education. I mean, you know, the Buffalo Public Schools have to have to, have to improve. Uh, we did have a panel on education, and Kreiner Cash uh, um, had some things to say, and he talked about community schools and, and how important they are. And I think they're more important now for the city than they ever were. And that's going to make a difference. You know, you talk to the folks that are over at, uh, at the old school 67, it's technically not a community school. But it is for the most part. I mean, yeah. you've got a lot of parent involvement there. You've got uh, you've got kids being able to walk to school. Well, most parents don't let their kids walk to school anymore. But uh, but it's but it's um, um, it's 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 giving a sense of community back to the community by by having schools. You know, the kids can technically walk to, but um, it, it makes a big difference. Is this in your in the twilight of your career? I'll say, or after in retirement, is this one of your proudest moments right now? Yeah, I really am proud of it. I, yeah. I, well, I'll be prouder when they I, they they start telling me they're writing checks. Yeah, <laughs> they're, <Bunk> up. <laughs> they're investing back in Buffalo, but I, I think that will come. It may not come the first year. You know, when I talk to the people in Detroit, uh, and I, and I went to Detroit's homecoming last year, uh, their fourth one. It was really interesting to, to to talk to the expats. I talked to the expats more than I talked to the organizers because the expats were really, really passionate about Detroit, and they were telling me how they were investing. You know, a couple of young guys, uh, uh, one guy lived in Baltimore, the other guy was from Florida, and they were saying how they formed a formed a real estate partnership, and they, they've been buying up um, single-family homes, rehabbing them, and selling them right away. 
and um, you know they're really proud of the fact that they'll go into a neighborhood that's pretty much decimated and they'll buy up three or four houses immediately and and rehab them immediately and what it does for the other people in the in the, in the neighborhood they start all of a sudden you see people out there painting or looking for for funds to you know to replace their windows or do these types of things he said so it it, it does prove to be a catalyst for for uh, for other other people in the community the great thing about and you know at the end of their fourth year and i just got the report the expats that came back to detroit invested 450 million dollars back into wow. detroit i mean just incredible numbers if we could get you know 10 of that yeah. yeah i mean you know i mean it, it's the kind of stuff that'll make a difference detroit is three times as large as buffalo it has three times the population um but it has three times the problems you know our neighborhoods are so much further along as far as um, being redeveloped or money being put into them uh, i mean you look at uh, we had john otto uh, um, uh, from hook and ladder on on one of the panels uh and the panel he was on was he was with uh, doug jamel who who uh is rehabbing one sonica tower um and uh, uh uh, Brandy Merriweather, who's who runs uh, who's number two for uh, Buffalo Urban Development Corporation, and afterwards John said to me, he goes, he goes, my God, he said, thanks for inviting me to this. He said this was great, but we wanted to talk to, you know, Jamel's doing the big project, the most visible project mm-hmm. around, but we wanted to talk to someone who was doing something in some something in the neighborhoods, and and rehabbing in the neighborhoods and, and helping to make the community better, you know. The, the three guys at Hook and Later aren't gonna, they can't be the only ones doing it because you know they can only do so much, but. You know, when people walk by and and see the bar where the barber shop used to be, and the building looks great, and oh yeah, there's a tattoo parlor there too. But so what? It's a business. It's thriving. It's it's doing well. You know that inspires other people to to spruce up their businesses or right. or put their buildings up for sale at some ridiculous price. But you know, at least yeah. there <laughs> there's some movement. You know, there's there's mm-hmm. there's there's some some sense of pride in what's going on, and uh, and you can't you can't read all the all the different. Uh, uh, you know, Facebook groups because they're all, well, you know, everybody yeah. finds something they to bitch about. They have definitely a know. unique look at it because, you know, they're taking it in an urban sense. Yeah. You know, it's right in the neighborhood and, you know, that's great what they're doing. Yeah, absolutely. The devil's newspaper. Uh, yeah. That's yeah, what Facebook. I call Facebook. Yeah, well, uh, you know, and then we bring it back to our neighborhood. Uh, the boys uh, did the Jim Parkinson tournament for 10 years and that just ended. And uh, Jim here ran... Uh, the Brian Krug hockey tournament for all those years, like the people that just support, you know, the communities and the Connors Kate Harity ran for 25 years. Yeah. Uh, and that was a, lot, a big community thing. Talk a little bit about that. Well, you know, South Buffalo has, um, I mean, you know, everybody's connected and, and everybody has a sense of pride and everybody respects everybody else in, in the community. Um, the the Connor Skate Harity uh, obviously came out of the tragedy of uh, you know my brother and Joey Kate and uh, uh, Tommy Harity being killed in a in a car train accident uh, back in 1977 in uh, um, out in uh, Sunset um, and um, you know everybody wanted to know what could we do I mean they, these guys were young I mean they were you know, uh, you know Kevy was I think 25 going to turn 25 and um, um, you know, it was Brian Hayton and uh, Denny Fay and and those guys all said, you know, we should do, you know, Charlie Moore was involved from the beginning. It's let's, you know, let's do something we can think of. And everybody was jogging then. And it was like, and, and, and Kevy was, Kevy was great. Kevy, Kevy was like six foot three and, and probably weighed in at about 320 pounds at one time. I mean, he was a big, big guy. And, um, 
and he he, he lost a ton of weight. He he'd, he'd run five miles twice a day. I mean, he he just got into this groove where he would go to South Park Lake. He'd he'd run. Um, and he stopped drinking beer. He's he drinking the, the the drink of uh, choice back then to lose weight was Rhine wine and soda. So he'd drink Rhine wine and <laughs> Rhine wine and soda, and then he'd get on this. He'd get on this. You know, all he'd eat would be bags of potato chips and Rhine wine and soda and and water and run and, and that. And so he lost all this weight. You know, so um, so you know, and he lived with Denny Fay and those guys. They were lived over on Marymount. And uh, at 55 Marymount, they call it double nickels is where they live. And, uh, <laughs> uh, um, but anyways, they, they came up with this idea, well, let's have a race, you know. And started at the out. The first, the first couple were at the ounce and a half. We ran, a, we ran a, uh, a route that started at the ounce and a half and went down Abbott Road, up Casanova, down through the park, back, and then back over to the ounce. And, um, uh, you know, party in the parking lot and, and, and such and in the bar. And then it started getting so big that we had to figure out, you know, what are we going to do? Where are we going to take this? And um, uh, Donnie Knott, who was uh, one of the uh, guys out at the, the Knights of Columbus in Lackawanna, said he was a good friend of John Cleary's and, and those guys. And he said, why, why don't you bring it out here? You know, we could, we could host it here. We'll figure out a route. We'll go around a botanical gardens or whatever. So we ended up moving it out there. And that was, that was probably 20 probably 23 or 20, 22 of the 25 years were held at the Knights of Columbus on South Park in Lackawanna. And it, it turned out to be a, it ended up being a, a reunion weekend for people. It was always that first weekend in June. People would come, come into town for it, family, friends, and it became a reunion. It, it was almost like a homecoming type of thing. Mm-hmm. And people would hang out for a couple of days at a time and didn't matter if, the, if it was raining or cold or whatever it was, you know, it didn't matter. Everybody was just happy to be together. We always had had a, had music. We had uh, uh, Bobby Worth and Stonebridge and those guys, and and um, and then Willie Shelkoff would join them. And, you know, it was just it became a real celebration. It was just a lot of fun. Plus, we raised a lot of money. I mean, we raised enough money where they named the pool a Connor Skate Heritage Pool over at Casanova Park. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that. Yeah, That's and great. we you know we bought. Um, uh, scoreboards for little league and all, all kinds of different things, you know, the community uh, that the, the, that the organizers were able to raise the money for and, and we contributed to. Uh, but, you know, it, it ran its course. It, you know, a lot of the younger people like uh, Jeff Conrad started getting involved and, 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 and those guys, which was great. But then it got, you know, then they started having families and it was just, it was just time to, you know, put it to bed. And as soon as that ended, uh, the Kyle Reed, um, uh, started so Kyle Reed had a race and it had a golf tournament every year, and I think Kyle Reed ran for ten years. You know, so people mm-hmm. would get together that weekend, and, and so now there's different things that have taken its place that, that serve a real similar purpose. But it's always a sense of community. It was always a sense of we're all doing this together. We're all well, there's a reason for us to do this. There's a reason for us not, not that you need a reason to get together and have a beer, but it, it was it, it became a, a more important yeah, uh, thing. Great for remembrance. The community. Like yeah, Jim and, did it for his friend, yeah. and it was a it was great. And, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. A lot of work by myself. At, at the end. <laughs> well, we had a lot of committees, so that yeah. that was that was a good thing. There was always there was never a, a shortage of people who wanted to help out, and, um, and 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 that was that was always good. But those are tough to do. There, you know, everyone oh, yeah. thinks it's a, you know you, you just show up and have a good time, but you've got to you know a lot a lot to do with organizing events. And now you got insurance and all. Oh sort yeah, of shit. and that was like one of the longest running memorial races, right? Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if there's anything longer now. There probably is, but uh, 
But at the time it was, well, and then it became part of the running series. The Buffalo News had a running series. So, you know, they'd made, name a runner of the year based on where you finished in, in a whole series of races. So mm-hmm. early on it became part of the part of the uh, series. We never had a uh, an official course a few couple of years. And then, mm-hmm. we, you know, then we had them come out and measure the course and and it became, it, it it became part of the part of the uh, runner of the year series at the Buffalo News. So it brought out a lot of elite runners. I mean, we we had years we had well over a thousand runners, uh, which was which was pretty good. I tore my closet apart looking for a shirt. I got two of them somewhere. But I, <laughs> when, we, when we moved in here, I bought you know yeah. you box everything up. <laughs> Oh, I was trying to find it to wear, so I, I wore the tie dye. Yeah, there you and go. Yeah, you know, you're a, bra- you're a deadhead. You know, you're a deadhead. So we always talk. You know, we've talked to some deadheads. Uh, what's your favorite era of the dead? Oh, the earliest days. The earliest days. The hate Ashbury. You, you, the, you, 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 yeah. We, I mean, we used to go over to um, our good friend Greg Conrad. Uh, grew up on real Street. Greg. Uh, Great guy. Uh, Greg. Uh, you know, Greg was a. a uh, a football player. He was uh, 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 University of Rochester was, uh, I think, a D three school, and uh, uh, Greg was, you know, athlete of the year. He was athlete of the year up at uh, up at Nichols and stuff like that. And you know, we always give him a lot of shit. But um, you know, Greg was a big uh, uh, deadhead, so we'd go over to the University of Rochester when they'd play over there and, and go see the dead and and and, and travel around and you know, we saw many different many different locations over the years and. Um, yeah, I, th- I think that was a that was a good part of the year. It was sort of a, um, you know, I, I think it was a, sort of a good thing for South Buffalo. I, nobody I hung around with ever got into disco or anything like that. I mean, they, <laughs> they like listening to the Dead or or uh, you know Traffic or Cream or something. I mean, they were more into the into the the music than they were the, you know, the instrumental, the the, the quality of the the artists than they were in, uh, you know, just noise and. Um, you know, so it was. It was always a lot of fun. We we traveled. We, we always used to travel for music all all the time. You know, it was just a, a, another excuse to get together and have a few beers. But but it was always always a lot of fun. You know, Watkins Glen was a good a good uh, oh, yeah. good couple of days. Um, you know, for, Great for, for, us, Walk, for, for us for us for us for us that missed Woodstock. You know, Watkins Glen was our Woodstock. You know, so <laughs> yeah. it, was, it was a lot of it was a lot of fun. That's awesome. Yeah, I saw that picture. You brought the whole family to San Francisco. Oh, when we went out to San Francisco, yeah, that was uh, uh, my sister-in-law, Nora Sullivan, was living out there at the time when we uh, we decided we'd take a uh, take a run out there. And uh, a woman who worked for me as my my sales manager had moved out to our San Francisco paper, so she was out there. So I wanted we we could see Laura and, and my sister-in-law. Um, and Laura became friends because they were both tennis players and they knew each other when they were both living in Buffalo. And then it turned out they were both in San Francisco at the same time. But, uh, yeah, so we went down. It was the, it was the, uh, the summer that Jerry Garcia died actually. Oh, and we were there, we were there two weeks after he passed away. And, um, um, so I said, well, let's go, let's go down to Haiti Ashbury, you know? So, so, so we went down, down to Haiti Ashbury and, and we parked and, and Darcy was I'm trying to think how old Darcy was, maybe, maybe four or five, something like that. And, um, so I said, well, I'll stay in a car with Darcy and, and I'm sitting there and, 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 and I had, my, my beard was, you know, really, really full and dark at the time. And, and, uh, I, I had a lot more hair and I'm sitting in the car and I was always told, you know, this goes back to the early seventies when I was in Europe, 
Oh, you look like, I mean, I passed for Jerry Garcia for two days in, a, in, in Switzerland the one time and drank for free a lot. Because <laughs> Europe 72 had just concluded, you know, oh, and, I, yeah. and, and, and we're hanging out there, me and Hughie O'Connor and, uh, and Jack Mooney. But um, uh, so I'm, we're sitting in the car and I'm talking to Darcy and some guy starts banging on my window and he, and he goes, he just he looks at me and he turns around and he just shits out, "It's him, it's him." <laughs> and Darcy's going, "Dad, what's going on? What's going on?" And I go, "I told you he didn't die. He's here. Jerry's here. You know? <laughs> Jerry's alive, man. Yeah. Jerry's so alive, that was right. Man. That was right on Hate Street, you know. And it was like, <laughs> oh, poor wow. Darcy's like in a panic mode. He doesn't know what's going. He thinks that they're going to roll, you know, turn the car over or something. So, so it was it was a lot of fun. Well, we're based out of Buffalo, Jack. So we got to ask you some Buffalo questions. Sure, just some quick hits. Uh, what do you think of this sky Skyway shit? Uh, you know, I I don't understand the. Uh, I mean, I can understand you know reuse, but the problem is I don't. Other than one plan of the nine finalists, uh, it addresses the traffic issue. You got forty thousand cars a day, minimum right now, going over yeah. that bridge uh, each you know each way, morning and in the evening. Where are you going to put that traffic? You know, I mean, a lot of it's been a lot of it's been diverted now with the construction that's going on, but it still makes it a pain in the butt. And and you really have to look at you know what's the plan. Uh, you know how are you gonna how are you gonna do it, and and and, and what are you gonna do? I mean, I can see making it into some type of urban oasis where you can do something with it, but. To be honest, I mean, I've read just a brief, a real brief summary of what they're what they're talking yeah. about. And every team, there's one team from Rochester and one team from Buffalo, uh, of the, out of the nine, and the rest of them are, you know, aren't from around here. And I don't know, you know, there's a lot that goes into it, um, you know, weather and everything else. I mean, I'd love to see something done. I'd love to see another bridge come across from from the foot of Main Street to the Outer Harbor. I mean, I think that's just important um, for, for whatever reason. But I think only one of the pro, one of them had a um, had a lift bridge going across. I mean, you've got to you've got to figure out uh, the the um, you know how are you going to move people from one one area to the other. And I a just lot don't of those get don't, it. Yeah, I don't not not giving somebody a hundred thousand dollars for coming up yeah. with a concept. No you way. Know? And then uh, you look at these you know the glad handers and the politicians. They it reminded me when they were going to put that uh, fishing place downtown oh bass pro bass pro they were all excited you know even guys that we know and respect they were all so and i'm watching the news yesterday and i'm like i don't get it are we driving on it still or it looks like a it, it looks like the epcot center almost. it looks like someone yeah, took so a flower the- pot and put like the end it's like what's going on yeah <laughs> i don't get it yeah yeah. Well, that's what that, that's the one that's supposed to be an observation. Basically, use it as a observation space or something like that. I mean, you got beautiful views from up there, but um, <laughs> you got beautiful views at the top of City Hall too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. got that. So I don't know. Uh, yeah, let's stay tuned on that one. Um, where's the new stadium going? You think? I hope not downtown. I mean, a lot of people are advocating for it, and, and you know, let's let's speculate for a second. If, if it's going to cost, you know. Probably a billion and a half for a brand new stadium, I'm guessing. And if you're gonna if you're gonna put it downtown, um, your your changes in infrastructure are gonna have to cost you almost that much. I mean, you're gonna have to widen the widen the I-90. You're gonna have to add more exits to it. Um, there's so much, you know, getting people in and out. You know, people complain about traffic from Orchard Park. That traffic exists for about two miles and then it disperses. 
Um, my, my personal opinion, I think they should build it right next to uh, uh, where the practice facility is now. Build it right there. And um, just like they did in Kansas City, just move everything right over. That'd be the best um, bet, I think. I think so. People, you know, when you look at the number, the percentage of people that go to the games as far as being season ticket holders, all those season ticket holders know how to know the best ways to get in and out of there. They they know which you know what ways it's going to happen. I mean, I we live out in Hamburg, and I could I could leave literally ten minutes before the game, park and be there before the national anthem was over with, and. Uh, and I'm like six miles away. Uh, and the same goes with leaving the game. I could I could leave the game right when the last whistle, uh, when there's zero on the clock, go out to my car and and be home in ten minutes, maybe fifteen minutes sometimes if if I hit if I just you know hesitated a little bit. But the thing was, everybody knows the shortcuts. You know how to get around the, yeah. the pinch points. You know how to do that. And I th- I think Orchard Park is you know I mean I think they should put it they should definitely dome it, um, but you know I just, I think that's it's a good location. I mean look how far out um, uh, in Boston how far out the stadium oh, yeah. is Foxborough. It's like jeez I mean that's that's an hour out of out of the middle of Boston. I mean that's a long way to go, but, but uh, you know people say well it'd be an economic catalyst on it. Uh, you I know, don't know ten games a year maximum. And then, yeah, well, they said, well, what about special events? How many big big concerts do you have anymore that can't sell them out? No, yeah, yeah. you don't. You don't need a facility that big for that type of thing. And of course, the facility wouldn't be eighty thousand seats. It'd probably be closer to sixty five thousand right. seats. I'm thinking they're going to make it smaller for sure. But they got to add the and amenities. And then, who's going to pay these these ticket licenses? These seat mm-hmm. licenses. I, I mean, they're going to be outrageous. You know, I mean, they they ran against this. Uh, it was in uh, Oakland when they tried to. They they ended up trying to sell them because no one would pay for them. I mean, you don't have this. There's not a. This isn't a Fortune 500 city. I mean, you don't have corporations that can afford uh, those kinds of numbers. And individual seat licenses would be crazy. I mean, you know, there's seat licenses already for the for the club seats, and and that's they're you know they've they've adjusted those pretty much downward as as opposed to upward over the years. You know, I I don't know. I don't know who's going to pay. You know, paying for it becomes problematic. And then the infrastructure—if you put it downtown—the infrastructure. I I don't think that's a good a good use of the space down there. Personally. We keep here in Cobblestone District, and it's going to push up against the news almost. Like you know, the, the Pagula wants right. everything to connect. Like to connect it together. Yeah. 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 They, well, they, 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 they Rakuya on on, uh, on last Thursday when he when he was talking to us about. Uh, uh, what the plans are? They, he said that he said the recommendations will probably come out close at the end of the year. He said we're he said we're taking a very unbiased view of this. Uh, we're letting um, letting the the study go where the study goes, uh, and and recommending the best best location. Um, and uh, they're also going to announce what the modifications are going to make to um, to Key, Key Bank Center too, because they said it's getting old and worn. It doesn't feel like it's twenty years old already. Yeah, that's and, crazy, uh, isn't it? Yeah, so they're going to make some major modifications there also as they move forward. He's wow. a sharp guy. You're going to see him move up the ladder. Or oh, go yeah. to another right. franchise yeah. one day. Oh, yeah. he he's a sharp guy. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I I really hope that the the NFL doesn't come in here and tell us you, you better build it. a new stadium or you're gone. Well, but if you know that that may be you know 
that may be counter counterproductive in the long term because if if you know if you're forced to build a new stadium and you can't sell the ticket the seat licenses and you and you and you don't have the uh, you know you, you get hit you run a referendum and the county says you know the voters in the county say no we're not going to pay for this we're not going to you know we don't want another one percent added on to the sales tax or a sin tax or something put mm-hmm. in to pay for this because again. Uh, it's going to be a smaller stadium. You're going to you're you're not going to have as many people in there. Um, you know now every every game is broadcast, right? Uh, you know so people don't have to go. Um, and like myself, I mean, I had season tickets probably over over the course of since this stadium opened in '73. I don't know. I probably had season tickets all but about ten years of that. And um, you know, it got, it got to the point where it was too much of a hassle. There were too many drunks. There was too many of this, yeah. too many of that. It was just like, yeah. Especially then they started showing them on TV. Yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, yes. I'll, I'll go to Doc Sullivan's or I'll, I'll I'll stay at home or whatever, you know, and, and watch the game. I'm going to so, be on the couch Sunday. Yeah. Nice and safe there, Mark. <laughs> right. Well, I think you gave like a real unique history of Buffalo, you know, like that media for as long as you've been. Is there anything uh, that you want to share with our listeners, like a unique history of Buffalo or something personal to yourself? Yeah, it's uh, it's it's interesting. I don't know. I don't even know if I've ever really told Sean and them about it, but but their great-great-great-grandfather came, when he came here, he came on a canal boat and then operated canal boats for years. And he was he was manager of what was called the North Northwest Transportation Company for years. And they he owned a... Uh, a lumber business down on on Canal Side, where Canal Side is now, that used to be the uh, Central Wharf. He had a uh, couple of businesses that were um, that were head, that were headquartered there. So he had like th- I think three different offices down in the Central Wharf. His name was Jason Parker, and uh, it's my mother's on my mother's side. But um, they're they're buried. He's buried, uh, and a lot of his family members are buried up in Forest Lawn. They were one of the first people buried in Forest Lawn. Wow, that's super cool. And, and we actually have a, a family plot up there. So everyone's been in this family plot had about 30, 30 to forty spaces for burial there, and we've all been maneuvering to see who's going to be buried there. <laughs> So, that's so you, awesome. so you yeah. can actually reserve, you know, if it's yeah. a family plot, you can. All you have to do is prove you're a you're a, a relative, and you can uh, you can you can be buried there. But now they've made it. They used to be able to assign them to people. Now it's uh, first come first serve. You know, oh. like just <laughs> we can't figure out where all the money went because none of <laughs> none, none of us ever got it. But there there was a lot of it at some point because he's got a big uh, uh, big uh, gravesite at, uh, at Forest Lawn and that type of thing and. Uh, you know, so so you know the, the the ties to the city go back a long way. Um, uh, my grandfather Jason Parker was a, a, a Buffalo uh, Buffalo copper. Um, you know, from probably about 1920 onward until he retired in the uh, in the early 60s, and um, uh, you know he hung out with all the uh, all the reprobates. You know that were from South Buffalo, Dinger <laughs> Dinger Whalen, and all these guys that were. That were, uh, were were cops with them and stuff, but a lot of lot of lot of good good people, you know. Um, no, I just proud of my Buffalo roots. You know, it's uh, it's it's one of those things. I'm proud to be from South Buffalo. It's 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 a community unlike any other. Um, you know, it, they say we're isolated here. You know, you go over the Bailey Avenue Bridge and all of a sudden you're in South Buffalo. It's uh, when I first started wearing the Courier, a few guys uh, had never been to South They grew up in North Buffalo. They'd never been to South Buffalo. They didn't know anything about South Buffalo. Don't you from, love seeing their faces? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Take them right to the ounce and a half when it was in existence, you know, and it was like, 
you guys are all nuts, you know. It was just, uh, <laughs> um, but it, but it's it's a it's a it's a place uh, that that people are proud to be from, uh, and and rightfully so. You know, there's mm-hmm. a there's a feeling of uh, camaraderie. There's a feeling of, uh, uh, of 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 all coming from a similar you know a similar background and source. You know, working class. Everybody's worked uh, worked hard all their lives to get to where they are and what they're doing. Uh, my kids still. Uh, uh, mumble at me about moving out of South Buffalo back in the uh, in the in the early '90s. Uh, you know, we moved out to Hamburg, and it was a choice based on schools more than anything else at the time. The kids were in the Buffalo Public Schools, and and things were not going well in the schools. And unfortunately, that's continued for quite a while. But um, that was our choice, you know. And and uh, you know, and rather than putting uh, putting the money into our house in Minnetonka, which I, I now fully regret because uh, <laughs> you probably uh, sell over four hundred thousand. Yeah, yeah. I, I just, uh, you know, it was one of those things that we put the money in the house uh, in, in South Buffalo and, and send them to, uh, you know, private schools. Um, or do we do we move out to the suburbs and we got a great public schools out here? And, uh, of course, as soon as we got as soon as they got out of eighth grade, they all went to private schools anyways. <laughs> you know, Sean to St. Francis, uh, Moore to Nard and, and Darcy to Canisius and uh, um you know, but they they all live in South Buffalo now. You know, they mm-hmm. they you know they sort of you know look look back and say, "Ha ha, we got you. We're back yeah. in South Buffalo." So, <laughs> so they're, you know they're all here. They're proud to be part of the community. And and uh, uh, even Darcy, when he was playing uh, lacrosse out out at Outer Frontier, he he played uh, he played for the South Buffalo lacrosse team with uh, Berkey, who I think was uh, was coaching yeah. at the yeah. time. And and you know, so Darcy had a lot of a lot of friends from. Um, from Timon and, uh, and and Canisius, of course, because he was going there. But you know, they all they all played together as one team. You know, and they yeah. they were proud of the fact that they the fierce loyalty we yeah, talk about. Yeah, you know, yeah. Is, so. yeah, they go out to they you know they they were looked as, looked at as as a bunch of uh, uh, you know just team that was just thrown together and then they'd go out to Orchard Park and play Orchard Park in a, you know, in a tournament and they'd beat Orchard Park or they'd kick the hell out of them. And, and, you know, Orchard Park was like, you know, they were this disciplined, yeah. you know, team was all, it was all this, all the kids that played together at school and here this team was just a, a throw it all together type of thing. And, uh, um, you know, and they, they compete uh, on, on a level that was different. That brought those kids all together. I mean, they just, uh, yeah. it just makes a difference, you know. Well, Marky, he, uh, he likes working with his hands, and he's getting his hands dirty in Buffalo. Uh, Jack, thanks for stopping by, and uh, you are now licensed to talk. Great, thanks. Thanks for inviting thanks me. So Appreciate much. it. Thank thanks, you. Jack. Back it up and go east and 